So as you can tell, our passage this morning is not exactly a cheery one. I'm not going to send you out of here skipping. It can be classified in the folder labeled the hard sayings of Jesus. And in fact, if that folder, the hard sayings of Jesus, was organized by degrees of hardness, Luke chapter 14 verses 16 through 35 would be at the top of the list. And it opens with Jesus still serving humble pie at the banquet, as we saw last week. Somewhere along the conversation, someone piped up and shouted, verse 15 of chapter 14, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And indeed, he's right. Blessed will everybody be who eats bread in the kingdom of God, but he's wrong in assuming that he will be there. Because in response, Jesus tells yet another parable. This time, it's about a man throwing a party, a big dinner. The food has been prepared, the table is set. Now all that awaits is the arrival of the guests. But one by one, as the time draws near, they each turn down the request. They are too busy, they say. One's got some land to look at, another has got a few oxen to try out, and still another blames his absence on the fact that he has a new bride. Right? Not a good idea. And as one might expect, the host becomes angry. He's seething with anger. The ungrateful and presumptuous guests have their invitation revoked, and instead it's distributed to others. First, to the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lime, and then... The blind and the lame, <laughs> the blind and the lame, the blind and the lame, uh, then to those on the highways and the hedges. And Jesus ends by saying, for I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste my dinner. Now, the point of the parable is not missed. The Pharisees and the scribes and the priests who smugly considered themselves, uh, considered their presence rather at the kingdom of God, a foregone conclusion, will in fact not be there. The invitation will come, or rather has come, and they were too preoccupied with more important things. I've got other business to handle, other things to take care of, and so they're in their place, Israel's destitute and beleaguered will be invited. And not only them, but also even the Gentiles will be invited to the kingdom of God. And so it's this story, the rejection of the leaders of Jesus and of the kingdom of God, that forms the backdrop of Jesus' severe words about discipleship. The call to discipleship has been issued. The invitation is sent And it's being greeted with indifference and apathy. I've got other things to do. I've got more important matters at hand. And thus, in light of this, Jesus issues his most shocking words yet in the Gospel of Luke. Our passage, therefore, and we're principally going to be focusing on that middle section where Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship. Our passage, therefore, is about What sort of lives cannot be lived by disciples? It's about what sort of lives that we cannot live if 
we choose to follow Jesus. Three times Jesus repeats the sentiment. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And again, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And finally, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Following Jesus is conditional. And the conditions are not set by us. We must come to Jesus on his own terms. And those terms are utter and absolute commitment to him. And if we're not prepared to embrace the terms that Jesus sets for us, he says, frankly, we cannot be his disciple. That these are hard words is undeniable. The cost of discipleship is very severe, and sitting with this passage all week, it begins to weigh on one's heart. But we'll turn to address that severity in a minute. We're first going to ask, why does Jesus require that his disciples adopt such an attitude in the first place? Why is it that we are to hate father and mother, etc., etc., even our own life to be Jesus' disciple? And the answer to that question is found in verse 25. The very beginning says, Now, large crowds were going along with him. Once again, we encounter Jesus on the road. He's going along. And remember, he's been on this road for quite some time. Rewinding all the way back to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, Jesus, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. In other words, as the days of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension drew near, he deliberately set out toward Jerusalem to confront his destiny. Jesus did not shrink back from the cross, nor did he seek to evade the Father's will, but rather he determined to accomplish the work that he came for. As he himself says, My soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You see Jesus' resolve to complete the work that he's been given. Thus, when our passage says that the large crowds were going along with Jesus, we are to understand that they were following him to Jerusalem where he was to be crucified. Now, by all accounts, the crowds accompanying him were unaware of this. They didn't know where this road was leading. Again, in a group that size, it's impossible to say why each one was there. Maybe out of sheer curiosity, maybe out of uh, a desire to be near the excitement, or maybe whatever. The point is, Jesus will not leave the crowds unaware of where this road leads. He is going to his death, and they must be prepared to follow. And so must we. 
The word Jesus uses to describe those who would come after him is disciple. And bound up in that word are all sorts of notions about following and imitating. Truly, disciple just means a learner. A disciple is one who follows after Jesus, who does what he does and goes where he goes. The servant is not greater than the master. Where the master is, the servant will be there also. In fact, when Jesus called his disciples, he simply uttered one command. Follow me. Follow me. And although we are not physically following behind Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, we are nonetheless still following him. That's why we're here this morning. We are followers of Jesus, seeking to follow our king wherever he might lead. And so for us, the road to Jerusalem, the road that has begun in Luke chapter 9 verse 51 and is going to commence at the end of the gospel, that's the road we're on. It becomes a metaphor for our lives, as it were. As disciples, we are traveling along those same dusty roads. We're taking the same winding path toward the cross. Soren Kierkegaard, a 19th century philosopher, distinguished between what he called admirers on one hand and imitators on the other. The church at his time, Kierkegaard said, had become merely admirers of Christ and had ceased to be truly imitators of Christ. And one gets the sense that the crowds following behind Jesus, tagging along, were in much the same position. Admirers more than imitators. Admiration, Kierkegaard says, is a way of keeping Jesus at a distance from oneself. One can admire the discipline and courage of an athlete without necessarily imitating them. One can appreciate the subtlety and emotional intelligence of an actor without necessarily stepping in front of the camera themselves. And just so, one can regard Jesus with admiration and respect without ever becoming the slightest bit like him a part of the adoring crowds, but not the band of disciples. And this mere admiration is always a danger for us and our discipleship to Jesus. We easily become too comfortable and too self-satisfied in our devotion to Jesus. We become like uh, the man, James says, who looks at his face, his natural face in a mirror, for once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately has forgotten what kind of person he was. In other words, having merely admired Christ, we think our part is done. But it's not enough to applaud him from the distance. It's not enough to look on and admire the great work that he's doing. Christ did not call for admirers, but imitators. Imitation is like admiration, Kierkegaard says, but still different. An imitator, he says, is or strives to be what he admires. An imitator is or strives to be what he admires. Both admire, but only the imitator imitates. 
And so true admiration, as we're employing the term here, does not prevent one from doing the work of discipleship, but it leads to it. Having admired Christ, we must then proceed to imitate Christ. Or, as James says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Therefore, when Jesus speaks these hard words to us, saying, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, it's that we might be prepared to follow him along the way. Because the way he goes is very demanding. He's seeking to do his Father's will, and that culminates with a man crucified on the cross. And so if one seeks to follow Jesus, on that road, one's loyalties will be tested. Discipleship to Jesus will call into question our most deeply cherished bonds and relationships. It will call everything into question. So, Another way of putting this whole matter is to say that who you are, the deepest part of who you are, your identity, what makes you you, must be determined by your relationship to Jesus before anything else. Who you are must be determined by your relationship to Jesus before anything else. Your relationships to spouse and children to mother and father, indeed to yourself and your possessions, cannot be the defining thing. That cannot be what makes you who you are, what is most fundamental. That place must be reserved for Jesus alone. Again, because the road Jesus takes is not necessarily the road you would like to take, or for that matter, that others would like you to take. It's not conventional wisdom to follow Jesus to the cross. We don't necessarily want that, and others don't necessarily want that for us. Your friends want you to travel the road that they're taking. Your parents want you to take the road that they were not able to, so that you might have a better life. And you want to proceed down a road of your own making. Now, these roads are not entirely forbidden, as if one could never listen to the counsel of others. But, here's the bottom line, if you seek to be a disciple, these alternative roads must be abandoned the moment they come into conflict with the road Jesus takes. Nothing can divert us from that main object. Nothing can divert us from doing the Father's will. And so, When one chooses or decides to follow Jesus, they're also deciding not to follow everything else. There is a yes that is given to him, but there is also a no to all sorts of other things. Good things even, that we have to say no to in our lives. So return once again to Jesus' words, Luke 14, 26. He says, If anyone comes to me, And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How 
are we to understand these words? As disciples, are we really commanded to hate our family and even ourselves? The answer is yes and no. Hate, as Jesus uses it here, should not be understood as a psycho, in, a, in a psychological or emotional sense. We are not to harbor resentment or, or, or to wish misery upon anyone, let alone our family, that would contradict everything Jesus has thus said and done. Rather, we're to understand hate in terms of showing preference to someone or something um, above Jesus. Listen to what he says just a few chapters on Luke sixteen thirteen. He says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Hate, as understood here, means something like rejection and renunciation. In question here are not merely feelings of resentment and liking, hate and love in that sense, but the matter is of devotion and disregard. A servant cannot serve two masters. He will love the one by consenting to and obeying him, and he will hate the other by disregarding and obeying him. Either our full allegiance is given to Christ, or it's given to something else. So consider another passage. This is Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. The Lord says, Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now, how is God's hatred of Esau actually worked out? It's not that God harbors feelings of disdain and loathing for the man Esau, but merely that his brother Jacob is chosen instead of him. Right, you guys know the story. Esau sells his, his, his birthright for, for, uh, for a meal, and Jacob takes it from him. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. Jacob is selected as the bearer of God's promise, but Esau is rejected and turned down for the position. So it's in that sense, to make no concessions to, to reject, to show no preference to, that we are to hate our father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even our own lives. Those things, good as they are, cannot, become, cannot come between us and our obedience to Jesus. And if they do, if anything seeks to insert itself between that space between us and the Lord, it must be turned down and disqualified. I think C.S. Lewis captures the idea well. He says, the real question is, which do you serve or choose or put first? To which claim does your will in the last resort yield? That's the matter here. When push comes to shove, which claim does your will yield to? And so obedience to these demands has never been about loving father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters less, but about loving Jesus Christ more. Augustine says, it's a matter of setting your loves in order. 
Make the proper degrees and render to each one what is his due, he says. Do not put what should come before below that which should come after it. Love your parents, but prefer God to them. It's a matter of setting the order of your loves in proper priority. Uh, To reflect the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And what is the second commandment? To love your neighbor as yourself. Nothing can take the place of supreme love for the Lord in your heart. So our loves must be ordered to reflect that. And naturally, what a person loves the most is what they will give final consent to. When there is that conflict between will, what we love most is ultimately what we are going to side with. A person who loves themselves most will hardly have a hard time turning down requests upon their time and energy. Right? It's not a problem. I've got my own time. I'm not worried about it. It doesn't matter what you say. A person who loves their spouse most won't flinch at the advancements of others. They'll reject them in an instant. And so one who loves Jesus supremely will hardly count it a sacrifice to set aside rival claims to their allegiance. When he's number one, our will will naturally reflect that. So again, to understand this in our context, um, given the fact that our context is still relatively favorable to Christians, it's not typically our families that come in between us and discipleship, but ourselves. Increasingly, we hear testimonies of disciples paying a steep price for obedience, in some cases losing their job, in some cases uh, being uh, ostracized from their family. That does happen. Yet those instances are still the exception rather than the rule. Those are not as common um, in our day as they are in other places or in other times. Most typically, asked of us is not a once-for-all dramatic break with family and possessions, but a daily self-renunciation in relation to ourselves. That is, imitating Jesus' example and obeying His call to discipleship in just the very ups and downs of our everyday life. That would mean something like saying no to extra leisure time instead to say yes to prayer. It would be something like saying no to some much-needed personal rest to instead say yes to a time of family devotion. It would be something like saying no for, with, to your need to be right, to argue your case, to instead be forgiving and gracious to those around you. It would be something like saying no to spending more on extra possessions and so on and so forth that you might say yes to share with the poor. Right? And the list goes on and on. That's the discipleship that primarily confronts us. And so here's the thing. Christ does not call us to self-denial because somehow saying no to ourselves is the ultimate goal of discipleship. It's not self-denial for the sake of self-denial. Rather, we say no to ourselves that we might say yes to Jesus and others. And ultimately, we only say yes to Jesus. Uh, We we must sometimes rather say no to to others that we might say yes 
to Jesus. And so as long as we are serving ourselves or indulging in our own desires and giving in to our own wants, we cannot be disciples. So Jesus says, you must take up your cross and follow me. This road requires our self-denial. And if we cannot be disciples, therefore we cannot love God and others as we ought to. And so Jesus' last exhortation, therefore, is to calculate the cost. He says, verses 28 and 32, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. The exhortation here is that one must not enter into discipleship lightly. Just as one does not begin construction or just as one does not embark on a military campaign without first diligently considering whether or not they have enough materials or enough manpower to complete the task, so we must not enter into discipleship without understanding the extent of the sacrifice required of us. Otherwise, like an unfinished tower and a humiliated king, we will have started but not been able to finish. We would have thought we're ready for the journey, but gravely misunderstanding how arduous it would actually be. And so for us, the temptation is always to cheapen the cost. That is, to write off Jesus' words here as mere hyperbole and exaggeration. It's all about the rhetorical effect. We should not take these words too seriously, we say to ourselves. But to be sure, that is not how those present would have understood them. Being turned out by their families, losing their entire livelihoods, even their lives was for them not merely a rhetorical flourish, but reality. In fact, not a few of those original hearers who who heard Jesus speak those words, would go on to pay that ultimate price, giving their lives, giving their entire possessions for the sake of Jesus. Therefore, we should not think because our circumstances are more favorable than theirs that Jesus demands anything less from us. The cost of discipleship remains as inflexible then or, excuse me, remains as inflexible today as it ever was. The Lord Jesus still lays claim to our ultimate allegiance. That comes first. Nothing else comes before. And though in all likelihood we won't have to pay such a steep price as our forebearers or as our brothers and sisters across the world, but we must be prepared to pay that price. I don't want to presume to say we won't be asked that, but we must be prepared to pay that price. And so the idea, again, is that one must reckon with the demands of Jesus prior to following him. 
and having reckoned with demands, we must embrace them wholeheartedly. You see that when we devalue the price, when we lower the cost of discipleship, we turn discipleship into something that's really not worth having. It's the cost that's necessary for genuine, authentic discipleship. So we must be prepared to hate our loved ones, to forsake our possessions, and even to deny our own lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so, counting the costs, that's what we want to do right now. And it might be helpful in counting the costs to imagine yourself present when Jesus spoke these words. Or imagine, them, or imagine Him speaking them directly to you. Saying, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And I can imagine being there, hearing those words. They're so severe that they, that they crack like a whip. And yet again, the severity of those words is the indispensable factor because it forces us to do the difficult work of introspection. Shining their light into our hearts, Jesus' words reveal our deepest thoughts and intentions. Am I ready to do that? Am I ready to commit to the Lord Jesus in such a manner? I imagine that upon hearing these words, many people turned back from following Jesus. Maybe deeply offended, maybe deeply grieved at what he said, but no doubt, some did remain. And that's because there is something strangely attractive and deeply revolting about Jesus' words. At once, they seem to draw you in, and at once they seem to push you away. On the one hand, we feel pushed away because it's only natural to shrink away from the severity of those words. Right? That's a normal human response. The thought of potentially breaking up and dissolving our most precious relationships in life to follow this man to the cross seems too much to bear. But on the other hand, we feel drawn in. His words are spoken with such authority that we feel compelled to believe them. I can imagine myself asking, who is this man? Who can speak this way and make such demands? And what if what he's actually saying is true? And so in the end, if someone stays with Jesus, it's because they see through the cost to the reward. And so if we do not turn away from the initial severity of Jesus' words, in time, that severity gives way to an enormous reward behind them. That is, once one has come to terms with and settled with Jesus' demands... They are able to see why he makes them. In the end, discipleship to Jesus costs everything because it is worth nothing less. The higher the price, the more valuable the item. The cheaper the price, the more common, the more mundane, the more worth not having the item. What then are we to make of Jesus' incredibly steep price Unfollowing him. It can mean nothing other than that the reward itself is priceless, worth everything that Jesus says it is. 
that truly following him is worth the risk of having to say no and to reject father and mother and brother and sister. And I think and I know there are many here who have paid such a price, who have been ostracized, who have had relationships broken up for their discipleship to Jesus. And though it stings and though it's hard, all testify it is worth it. And so I said at the beginning that discipleship to Jesus is to take the same road to Jerusalem that Jesus took. And that's true, but the cross outside Jerusalem on Calvary's hill was not Jesus' ultimate destination. The cross was merely a stop, a way station on his way back to the Father. And so it is for us. We pay a steep price But not for nothing. The kingdom of God awaits. There are far better things ahead than what we leave behind. Christ offers so much more than what he asks us to lay on the altar. Take him at his own word. He says, Luke chapter 18, verse 31, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. And so as we wind down, the last observation that I want to leave you with is that in the end, everything costs. Everything costs. The question is not whether or not you will pay a price, but what you will pay the price for. One chooses to pay the price for the sake of their career, in return for being the top earner and the most successful. They sacrifice their marriage and their relationship to their children. Another chooses to pay the price for the sake of their pleasure, in return for an abundance of sexual partners. They sacrifice the joy of lifelong commitment and companionship. And still another pays the price for the sake of their comfort. In return for a life of ease and stability, no problems, nothing nothing interrupting them, they sacrifice meaningful relationships and personal meaning. Right, And on and on the list can go. And I think if we look at our own lives, we know where we have chosen to pay a price. The scripture says, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. There's always some sort of price. And so the question we have to ask ourselves then as we try to come to terms with what Jesus is saying here is, is the price that we're paying worth what we're getting in return? Is is the investment that we're putting our lives into worth what's coming back to us? And in the end, the only return that is worth more than it costs is discipleship to Jesus. It was Jim Elliot, a missionary and martyr who died trying to take the gospel to remote tribes in South America. It was Jim Elliot who once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that, we, that which he cannot lose. So, let us sow into, into discipleship, following Jesus, that we, that we might reap eternal life.